Thank you, Katie, and uh, thank you to President Faust and the fellows of Harvard College, the Board of Overseers, and all of the faculty, alumni, and students who have welcomed me back to campus. I am excited to be here, not only to address the distinguished graduates and alumni at Harvard University's 363rd commencement, but most importantly, to stand in the exact spot where Oprah stood last year. <laughs> OMG! <laughs> Let me begin with the first order of business. Let's have a big round of applause for the class of 2014. They've earned it. Now, as cited as these graduates are, they are probably even more exhausted after the past few weeks. And parents, I am not re referring to their final exams. <laughs> I'm talking about the Senior Olympics, the Last Chance Dance, and the Booze Cruise. I mean, the Midnight Cruise. <laughs> Anyways, this year has been exciting on campus. Harvard beat Yale for the seventh straight time in football. The men's basketball team went to the second round of the NCAA tournament for the second straight year. And the men's squash team won a national championship. Who'd have thunk it? Who'd have thunk it? Harvard, an athletic powerhouse. Pretty soon, Drew, they're going to be asking whether you have academics to go along with your academic programs. Now, my personal connection to Harvard began back in 1964 when I graduated from Johns Hopkins in Baltimore and matriculated here at the B School. You're probably asking yourself, or maybe whispering to the person next to you, how did he ever get into Harvard Business School, particularly since his stellar academic record, where he always made the top half of the class possible? <laughs> I have no idea. The only people who were more surprised than me were my professors. <laughs> Anyways, here I am back in Cambridge, and I've noticed a few things have changed since I was a student here. Elsie's, a sandwich spot I used to love near the square, is now a burrito shop. <laughs> the worst house, which had great beer and sausage, is now an artisanal gastro pub, whatever that is. <laughs> And the old Holyoke Center is now named the Smith Campus Center. Don't you just hate it when alumni put their names all over everything? <laughs> I was thinking about this morning as I walked into the Bloomberg Center on the Harvard Business School campus across the river. But the good news is, Harvard remains what it was when I first arrived on campus 50 years ago, America's most prestigious university. And like other great universities, it lies at the heart of the American experiment in democracy. Their purpose is not only to advance knowledge, but to advance the ideals of our nation. Great universities are places where people of all backgrounds, holding all beliefs, pursuing all questions, can come to study and debate their ideas freely and openly. And today, I'd like to talk to you about how important it is for that freedom to exist for everyone, 
no matter how strongly we may disagree with another's viewpoint. Tolerance for other people's ideas and the freedom to express your own are inseparable values at great universities. Joined together, they form a sacred trust that holds the basis of our democratic society. But let me tell you, that trust is perpetually vulnerable to the tyrannical tendencies of monarchs, mobs, and majorities. And lately, we've seen those tendencies manifest themselves too often, both on college campuses and in our society. That's the bad news. And unfortunately, I think both Harvard and my own city, New York, have been witnesses to this trend. First, for New York City. Several years ago, you, as you may remember, some people tried to stop the development of a mosque a few blocks from the World Trade Center site. It was an emotional issue, and polls showed that two-thirds of Americans were against a mosque being built there. Even the Anti-Defamation League, widely regarded as the country's most ardent defender of religious freedom, declared its opposition to the project. The opponents held rallies and demonstrations. They denounced the developers, and they demanded that city government stop its construction. That was their right, and we protected their right to protest. But they could not have been more wrong, and we refused to cave into those demands. The idea that government would single out a particular religion and block its believers, and only its believers, from building a house of worship in a particular area is diametrically opposed to the moral principles that gave rise to our great nation and the constitutional protections that have sustained it. Our union of 50 states rests on the union of two values, freedom and tolerance. And it is that union of values that the terrorist who attacked us on September 11, 2001, and on April 15, 2013, found most threatening. To them, we were a godless country. But in fact, there is no country that protects the core of every faith and philosophy known to humankind, free will, more than the United States of America. And And that protection, however, rests upon our constant vigilance. We like to think that the principle of separation of church and state is settled. It is not, and it never will be. It is up to us to guard it fiercely and to ensure that equality under the law means equality under the law for everyone. If you want the freedom to worship as you wish, to speak as you wish, and to marry whom you wish, you must tolerate my freedom to do so or not to do so as well. Now, what I do may offend you. You may find my actions immoral or unjust. But attempting to restrict my freedoms in ways that you would not restrict your own leads only to injustice. We cannot deny others the rights and privileges that we demand for ourselves. And that is true in cities, and it is no less true at universities where the forces of repression appear to be stronger now, I think, 
than they have been at any time since the 1950s. When I was growing up, U.S. Senator, yes, you can applaud. When I was growing up, U.S. Senator Joe McCarthy was asking, are you now or have you ever been? He was attempting to repress and criminalize those who sympathized with an economic system that was even then failing. McCarthy's Red Scare destroyed thousands of lives. But what was he so afraid of? An idea, in this case communism, that he and others deemed dangerous? But he was right about one thing. Ideas can be dangerous. They can change society. They can upend traditions. They can start revolutions. And that's why throughout history, those in authority have tried to repress the ideas that threaten their power, their religion, their ideology, or their re-election chances. This was true for Socrates and Galileo. It was true for Nelson Mandela and Vaclav Havel. And it has been true for Ai Weiwei, Pussy Riot, and the kids who made the happy video in Iran. Repressing free expression, expression is a natural human weakness, and it is up to us to fight it at every turn. Intolerance of ideas, whether liberal or conservative, is antithetical to individual rights and free societies, and it is no less antithetical to great universities and first-rate scholarships. Now, there is an idea floating around college campuses, including here at Harvard, I think, that scholars should be funded only if their work conforms to a particular view of justice. There's a word for that idea, censorship, and is just a modern form of McCarthyism. Think about the irony. In the 1950s, the right wing was attempting to repress left-wing ideas. Today, on many college campuses, it is liberals trying to repress conservative ideas, even as conservative faculty members are at risk of becoming an endangered species. And that is probably nowhere true, more true than it is here in the Ivy League. In the 2012 presidential race, according to federal elections, yes, thank you. In the 2012 presidential race, according to Federal Election Commission data, 96% of all campaign contributions from Ivy League faculty and employees went to Barack Obama. 96%. There was, there was more disagreement among the old Soviet Politburo than there was among Ivy League donors. And that statistic should give us some pause. And I say it as someone who endorsed President Obama for re-election. Because let me tell you something. Neither party has a monopoly on truth or God on its side. When, when 96% of Ivy League donors prefer one candidate to another, you really have to wonder whether students are being exposed to the diversity of views that a great university should offer. Diversity of gender, ethnicity, and orientation is important, but a university cannot be great if its faculty is politically homogeneous. In fact, the whole purpose of in fact, the whole purpose of granting tenure to professors 
into it to ensure that they feel free to conduct research on ideas that run afoul of university politics and societal norms. When tenure was created, it was mostly protected liberals whose ideas ran against conservative norms. Today, if tenure is going to continue, it must also protect conservatives whose ideas run up against liberal norms. Otherwise, university research and the professors who conduct it will lose credibility. Great universities must not become predictably partisan, and a liberal arts education must not, must not be an education in the art of liberalism. The role of universities is not to promote an ideology, it is to buy, provide scholars and students with a neutral forum for researching and debating our issues without tipping the scales in one direction or repressing unpopular views. Requiring scholars and commencement speakers, for that matter, to conform to certain political standards undermines the whole purpose of a university. This spring, this spring, it has been disturbing to see a number of college commencement speakers withdraw or have their invitations rescinded after protests from students and, to me, shockingly, from senior faculty and administrators who should know better. It happened at Brandeis, Haverford, Rutgers, and Smith. And last year, it happened at Swarthmore and Johns Hopkins, I'm ha sorry to say. In each of these cases, Liberals silenced a voice, and they denied an honorary degree to individuals that they deemed politically objectionable. This is an outrage, and we must not let it continue. If a university thinks twice before inviting a commencement speaker because of his or her politics, censorship and conformity the mortal enemies of freedom went out. And sadly, it's not just commencement season when speakers are censored. Last fall, when I was still in City Hall, our police commissioner was invited to deliver a lecture at another Ivy League institution. But he was unable to do so because students shouted him down. Isn't the purpose of a university to stir discussion, not silence it? What were the students afraid of hearing? And why did administrators not step in to prevent the mob from silencing speech? And did anyone consider that it is morally and pedagogically wrong to deprive other students the chance to hear the speech? Now, I'm sure all of today's graduates have read John Stuart Mill's On Liberty. But just let me read a short passage from it. Quote, the particular evil of silencing the expression of an opinion is that it is robbing the human race, posterity as well as the existing generation, those who dissent from the opinion still more than those who hold it. He continued, if the opinion is right, they are deprived of the opportunity of exchanging error for truth. If wrong, they lose what is almost as great a benefit, the clear perception and livelier impression of youth, of truth produced by its collision with error. Now, Mill would have been horrified to learn of university students siling the opinions of others. He would have been even more horrified that faculty members were often part of the commencement censorship campaigns. For tenured professors, 
to silence speakers whose views they disagree with is really the height of hypocrisy, especially when those protests happen in the Northeast, the bastion of self-professed liberal tolerance. Now, I'm glad to say that Harvard has not caved in to these commencement challenges Challenge, censorship challenges. If it had, Colorado State Senator Michael Johnston would not have had the chance to address the education school yesterday. Some students called on the administration to rescind the invitation to Johnson because they opposed some of his education policies. But to their great credit, President Faust and Dean Ryan stood firm. And as Dean Ryan wrote to the students, quote, I have encountered many people of good faith who share my basic goals but disagree with my view views when it comes to the question of how best to improve education. In my view, those differences should be explored, debated, challenged, and questioned, but they should also be respected and indeed celebrated. He could not have been more correct. He could not have provided a more valuable final lesson to the class of 2014. As a former chairman of Johns Hopkins, I strongly believe that a university's obligation is not to teach students what to think, but to teach students how to think. And that requires listening to the other side, weighing arguments without prejudicing them, and determining whether the other side might actually made some fair points. If the faculty fails to do this, then it is the responsibility of the administration and the governing body to step in and make it a priority. If they do not, if students graduate with ears and minds closed, the university has failed both the students and society. And if you want to know where that leads, look no further than Washington, D.C. Down in Washington, every major question facing our country, involving our security, our economy, our environment, and our health is decided. Yet the two parties decide those questions not by engaging with one another, but by trying to shout each other down and by trying to repress and undermine the research that counters their ideology. The more our universities emulate that model, the worse off we will be as a society. And let me give you a few examples. For decade, Congress has barred the Centers for Disease Control from conducting studies of gun violence. And recently, Congress also placed that prohibition on the National Institute of Health. You have to ask yourself, what are they afraid of? This year, the Senate has delayed a vote on President Obama's nominee for Surgeon General, Dr. Vivek Murthy, a Harvard physician, because he had the audacity to say that gun violence is a public health crisis that should be tackled. The gall of him. <laughs> Let's get serious. When 86 Americans are killed with guns every single day and shootings regularly occur at our schools and universities, including last week's tragedy at Santa Barbara, it would be almost medical malpractice to say anything else. But in politics, as it is on far too many college campuses, people don't listen to facts that run counter to their ideology. They fear them, and nothing is more frightening to them than scientific evidence. Earlier this year, 
the state of South Carolina adopted new science standards for its public schools, but the state legislature blocked any mention of natural selection. That is like teaching economics without mentioning supply and demand. <laughs> Once again, you have to ask, what are they afraid of? And the answer, of course, is obvious. Just as members of Congress fear data that undermines their ideological beliefs, these state legislators fear scientific evidence that undermines their religious beliefs. And if you want proof of that, consider this. An eight-year-old girl in South Carolina wrote to members of the state legislature urging, urging them to make the woolly mammoth the official state fossil. The legislators thought it was a great idea because a woolly mammal fossil was found in the state way back in 1725. But the state Senate passed a bill defining the woolly mammoth as having been, quote, created on the sixth day with the beasts of the field, unquote. You can't make this stuff up. Here in 21st century America, the wall between church and state remains under attack, but it's up to all of us to man the barricades. Unfortunately, unfortunately, the same elected officials who put ideology and religion over data and science when it comes to guns and evolution are often the most unwilling to accept the scientific data on climate change. Now, don't get me wrong, scientific skepticism is healthy. But there's a world of difference between scientific skepticism that seeks out more evidence and ideological stubbornness that shuts it out. Given the general attitude of many elected officials towards science, it's no wonder the federal government has abdicated its responsibility to invest in scientific research, much of which occurs at our universities. Today, federal spending on research and development as a percentage of GNP is lower than it has been in more than 50 years which is allowing the rest of the world to catch up and even surpass the U.S. in scientific research. The federal government is flunking science, just as many state governments are. But we must not become a country that turns its back on science or on each other. Now I get back to the class of 2014. You graduates must help lead the way. On every issue, we must follow the evidence where it leads and listen to people where they are. If we don't do that, there, if we do that, there is no problem we cannot solve, no gridlock we cannot break, no compromise we cannot broker. The more we exchange or embrace a free exchange of ideas, and the more we accept that political diversity, the healthier we are, the stronger our society will be. Now, I know this has not been a traditional commencement speech, and in fact, it may keep me from passing a dissertation defense in the humanities department. <laughs> but there is no easy time to say hard things. Graduates, throughout your lives, do not be afraid of saying what you believe is right, no matter how unpopular it may be, especially when it comes to defending the rights of others. Stand up for the rights of others, and in some ways, it's even more important than standing up for your own rights. Because when people seek to repress freedom for some, and you may remain silent, you are complicit in that repression, and you may well become its victim. Do not be complicit. Do not follow the crowd. Speak up and fight back. You will take your lumps, I can assure you of that. 
you will lose some friends and make some enemies. I can assure you of that too. But the arc of history will be on your side, and our nation will be stronger for it. Now, all of you graduates have earned today's celebration. You have a lot to be proud of, a lot to be grateful for. So tonight, as you leave this great university behind, have one last scorpion bowl at the Kong, and second thought don't. And tomorrow, get back to work making our country and our world freer forever, freer for everyone. God bless and good luck.